Welcome to another episode of Grief Talk. Everything you want to know about grief and more. I'm your host, Vaughn Solis. As an author, mentor, and bereaved mom since 2005, through guest interviews and coaching, here's where you'll always get great content that is inspiring and practical to help you heal after loss. Today's guest is Janae Borejo. Janae, a Southern California native, is a licensed marriage and family therapist under the Board of Behavioral Sciences of California. She is also an out-of-state telehealth provider, marriage and family therapist with the State of Florida Department of Health. Identifying as a Mexican-American queer Latinx provider with a private practice, Janae considers herself a wounded healer. She pulls from her toolkit what she has learned professionally and utilized personally in her own recovery journey to help clients in the LGBTQ+, Latinx, and BIPOC communities. So, Janae, welcome to the show. I am so excited that you are here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So audience, we have lots to cover today. Uh, in the introduction, I introduced uh, Janae, you know, with all her qualifications in coaching, consulting, mentoring, she offers workshops, we're going to get uh, in, into that a little bit more uh, towards the end with your resources, uh, Janae. But um, I did want to uh, basically uh, start with acknowledging that you uh, did have a focus in marriage family uh, therapy. Um, you do work in trauma, correct? Yeah, I do. And, yeah. Yeah. And um, you do uh, focus, I don't know if the focus is the right word, but uh, a large part of your communities are in the LGBTQ, the BIPOC, and Latinx. And I'm really eager, eager to learn all about uh, your work in those areas, because a lot of what we're talking about today, audience, is uh, grief adversity. We're going to start a little bit with Janae's experience, her uh, personal as much as she wants to share and what led her to her work. We're also going to be talking about resilience in terms of living versus surviving, where there is a huge difference. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about transgenerational trauma and anything that Janae can share uh, professionally and personally uh, about that. And we're also going to be touching on gender identity and how that impacts individuals. And this is, again, going to uh, focus a lot on Janae's personal and professional uh, background, which I'll let her explain. So, Janae, let's get right to it. And if you could just share with the audience uh, what you do and basically what led you to do it. Yeah. Yeah, we're just going to be covering a few minor things today, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. But that's what this show is all about, digging deep. And, I, and I'm here and I'm super excited to actually really kind of have conversations around these. I think we don't, you know, have them enough. Yeah, so a little bit about me. So I was, you know, born and raised in Southern California. I'm from a little town. I don't even say little. It doesn't feel like it was little to me, but um, a smaller city, Oxnard, California, coastal city in Ventura County. So about an hour north of LA. Um, it came from a really big uh, Mexican-American family. So I'm roughly around like third generation here, but very much grew up to what I thought was, you know, a, a super strong American, uh, Mexican culture. But I, you know, I've now come to realize I had such a blended um, growing up in regards to like my ethnicity, like I was very blended that I got like probably equally as amount of Mexican culture as I did American, but I didn't know it then. So, um, but yeah, I, you know, I just, I'm the first one, you know, to go to college in my family. So that was a, you know, an interesting journey, um, a personal achievement of mine. I always knew that it was something that was on the horizon for myself. Um, and I just really didn't know what I was going to do when I got there, you know, if I'm being completely frank, when you don't have maybe like a roadmap or, you know, kind of a reference of people before you, um, kind of the best advice I got was just try all the classes and see what's going to work for you, you know? So I really sort of kind of landed on psychology uniquely, you know, um, I took a class, it was a human sexuality class and, uh, it was like everybody wanted to take it on campus. So I took it and it really like opened my eyes and I was like, boom, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I actually wanted to do sex therapy right away. And, um, you know, that was kind of something in the back of my mind. I pursued my education. I got into my undergrad program and, and a lot of my professors were like, hey, you should, uh, you should be a therapist. And I was like, really? You're really good at it. And I'm like, okay like I'll yeah. consider it <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I get out of uh, graduating from my undergrad and, you know, I realize I'm not going to make a lot of money with just a bachelor's, you know, and I'm, I'm self-supporting, you know, at this time in my life. So I was with a partner then who was in therapy training. So um, I, I took a year off and then I jumped right into it. And I just really haven't looked back, you know. And so when people are like, hey, how did you choose this field? Like, has it always been your thing? I always laugh because I was like, I had no idea what I was going to do. But I think in many ways, um, for people who kind of have a little bit of a complex history like myself, so I definitely will say I come from complex trauma. I think it's kind of our way of really trying to understand our own world without even like realizing that's what we're doing. So I think in many ways, um, it's easy to say like, oh, yeah, I chose this field because people recommended it for me. But I think there was also an internal drive where I was really needing to make sense of my world. So that's kind of really like how I kind of came to be a therapist, like, you know, in a short, not so short answer. I did have a question, though, for you, which I'm always curious. So when you're the first in your generation to pursue higher education, what was it about you or maybe somebody encouraged you that sort of went, no, I'm not staying here that like, I don't really want to say break the cycle. But what even made you think that it was possible given you didn't have anybody showing you that it was? Yeah, well, you know what? I, I, I want to say, you know, not that I don't give a lot of value and, and appreciation to my mom. I will say I think that kind of really came from my dad a little bit in the sense that like, I was an athlete. So being an athlete by default, you had to be a student, right? And I and I just always I think looking up to athletes in my sport, I always knew so I was a softball player. It, uh, a, a lot of um, lesbians out there might giggle if they hear this because it's a very common thing, you know, Is for those, yeah, to be athletes. But um, I was, I was a softball player. So when I would look up to people, like there, there wasn't professional softball, you know, when I grew up and there barely is one now. So we're going to talk about gender disparity kind of issues here. But are you talking at the college level? At the college level. So I think I knew that I wanted to go very far athletically. So it was like, well, the next thing is college, right? So and if you go to college, great, you might get an education. And my dad um, kind of instilled education in me. My mom was more the worker bee. So um, I just knew if I wanted to keep playing, I and, and realistically, at some point, I think when I became a teenager, um, I knew I wanted to get out of my town. So I was like, look, I got to stay in school. That was the only thing I knew would be an option because I also grew up with like a family where the narrative was, hey, you got to work hard, you got to get a stable job and you stay there your whole life and you get your 401k and your retirement. So I think it kind of just seemed like the natural progression with being a student athlete, you know, anyways, I felt very lost in that process because my family didn't really know how to help me in that space. I never want to uh, say anything negative about parents because it is every parent's dream that our kids have a better life than we do. Totally. Yeah. Whatever way. But um, you see, I grew up in a family that we didn't have a lot of extra money. So out of four kids, there was only money to send one to university. And my brother got it. And deservedly so. He was almost like freaking genius level. But it took me until 30 years old to realize I could be more than at that time the glass ceiling was allowing me to be. See, so I didn't have anyone showing me and encouraging me, like, you're really smart. You could do this. I left home just uh, before my 16th birthday. So in many ways, I probably have similarities to what we're going to be talking about today in my own life because it I only had to rely on my own, you know, my own noggin here and make wise choices and something always guided me. And that's what's so interesting for people that break, you know, go, no, I can do this. They break the ceilings, they break the patterns. And so for you, it was just some innate, it sounds like some innate understanding that you had to stay in school and it was the athletics that made that seem um, real to you. Whereas with me, it took me till 30 and basically having somebody, an employer at that time, tell me, you need to go to university and you can do it. And I was a single mom. Yeah. And I went, I, I listened and I went. Yeah. You no, know, 
so anyway, did you have any mentors like that? Or it was it really the athletics pushing you? Or did you have like teachers, like other people say, you should go to university, Janae, you're so smart. You know, it's funny, like, as you were reflecting on that, and, and, and you know, like me taking a moment to reflect as well, it, it, it wasn't so much like, now that you say that, like, I was smart, I was, I'm, I'd like to believe I'm an intelligent person. <laughs> if you ask me a characteristic for myself, that's going to be one of them. Um, yeah. But you know, it's funny, I felt like I got a lot more admiration for my athletic talent, and that mm. that could project me, right? My family in no way was ever going to afford my college. Never. Right. So I knew it was a job that I had to take on myself. And the only way I could do that was, hey, I'm an athlete. And again, a lot of times in marginalized communities, that's the narrative. You, we don't have money to send you. So you got to really figure out like if you're an athlete, you got to use that to get to the next level. So maybe subconsciously, I'm not, you know, there was a part of me that say like, yeah, I'm great at this. And I loved it. I was, you know, I loved being an athlete. Um, but there was such a necessity to, to having that be a part of my life to help me because it was the coaches that were like, you're good, you're going to go to the next level. It was never like a teacher that was like, you're so freaking smart. You're going to get an academic scholarship. I think in general, because I came from a community where there was a lot of Mexicans, Mexican Americans, that I think the professors, in some way, some of them would try to say like, hey, like, keep doing this, you know, but it was it wasn't as loud as I think it would have been helpful. Um, because for me, I wasn't also like the best student, I got to be honest, now that I realize my life and my reflect, you know, I, I used to be the first grader where they would send me home with slips every day, I got the green, or I got the yellow or the red, which was indicative of my behavior. And I find that to be it was a reflection of the stress that I was under. Again, I grew up in a very stressful environment. So it yeah. felt a little ADD to me. And I think it was very sort of um, stress induced. So I kind of had to like, finesse my way through school, I wasn't always good at reading or like writing, but I could absorb information, I could verbally tell you I was great at math, you know, and I actually had an older sister, she was like our straight A student in the family. So I kind of felt like in her shadow a little bit. And um, yeah, but you mentioned a really good point, like saying it was sort of like ADD. I'm not sure what generation you are. Uh, they certainly weren't diagnosing it uh, 40 years ago, uh, 30 years ago. I'm not even sure, maybe 20 years ago, it started to kind of be a thing and the spectrum and all that. I think that's kind of happened in the last maybe 20 years, would you say? Yeah, uh, and predominantly for young boys, you know what I mean? They, they pathologize, you know, boys hyperactivity. So um, I was never diagnosed. I sometimes kind of figure I might have struggled with it. But yeah. you know, I'm an adult now I function now I've learned to function with myself the way I with the way I operate. Yeah. But yeah, predominantly boys would get it because boys have a lot more energy and girls historically it was ADHD and ADD. So now it's just ADHD with specifiers. So you could have been the hyperactive type, or the destructible type. But if you're this non hyperactive type, would just could be girls, right? They don't have as much energy yeah. that they were a lot of times not diagnosed. It was predominantly given to young boys in the beginning, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I don't really want to turn this into gender thing, but we have to, I, I always talk, I will not always, but often talk about gender with my guests because whether it's the glass ceiling, like in my case, uh, looking back and just and, and at, you know, a focus on athletics in your case and whatever they're dealing with today. Ladies, uh, women, uh, anybody non-binary who's watching this, anybody, even men, depending on how you grew up, if you're not told and, you know, that you're intelligent and you're not respected and you're not recognized for who you are in any given stage of your growth and development, well, this is why we become a bunch of dysfunctional adults. And there's lots of jobs for therapists, lots of clients for therapists, right? It's we we really need that we really need to have those reinforcements. And I will just say a little nod to the female gender, because over the decades, we have been predominantly the ones that have not been recognized for our smarts. Um, but if that speaks to you, anyone in the audience, think about it, because this is what we, well, Janae, I'm going to ask you from a therapeutic point of view, what will help us feel intelligent 
and smart if you don't feel that way today, but you know you are. Yeah. You know, and here's the thing. I, I felt, I want to be clear, to, I felt smart. I felt like I, I didn't feel not smart. Let me say that. I didn't feel like I didn't grasp it. I felt challenges in subjects that were my bag, you know, my bag. You know, obviously it was great in math. I was I was great in PE, right? Uh, <laughs> of course. Um, I think a lot of the struggle where I, I struggled was like learning how to study and creating a structure. You know, my mom was in, a, I think, many ways provided an opportunity to go to college because of her need to just provide, you know, and she was a young mother. She got, you know, um, pregnant with my eldest sister as a teenager. So at that point, your goal is to make money, you know, so I don't think that my mom never had that goal. I honestly never asked her. Isn't that unique? I've never asked her because she just kind of jumped in and did what she had to do. My yeah. sisters are very intelligent. And and I don't think that it wasn't that I wasn't intelligent, but you, you follow a sister who was a straight A, a, a treasurer, you know, on the um, ASB board. Like my path was just different, but parents will often look at all their kids go and go like, well, your sister's here, but you're, you know, there it, it's a normal to kind of compare. But I think in general, I think it's important to acknowledge all aspects of people. Yeah, I was an athlete, but that was just part of me. You know, I was very lucky because there are athletes who have a hard time walking away from the sport. I was not that person. And I was surprised that I, I was okay because it was so much part of my life and my identity and my um, positive characteristics. I just, I, I dove into to my, my education, my master's program. So I was able to kind of walk away from college, like feeling like, okay, great. You know, but I think because if that's your whole identity and then you no longer have it, or you haven't been reinforced in other areas of your life, like it's important just for people or just because you don't super great at the flow of American school doesn't mean you're not intelligent. I just wasn't good with the structure of the way American schools operate, but I'll learn anything today and I absorb it and I find it helpful. So yeah. it's really about individuality and seeing people and, and, and knowing that like, we're not all encompassing to one thing, you know, just because yeah. we're great at that one thing. I often question if it was something I always wanted to do, or if it was something like I happened to be really good at, and I knew it could get me far. So I did it. But even that's very insightful. And even if it was the latter, so what it got you where you needed to be. And I'm so grateful for it too. You know, like, it's a beautiful part of my life. It gave me privilege to yeah. educate myself and culture myself I traveled as a, I went to Alabama I've been to Florida I've been to Texas like I, w I was a collegiate athlete you know so it cultured me and I think more than anything not just getting education I was able to see things that were so necessary to allow me to grow beyond my culture ceiling for sure I just have a really quick aside here um, what are the scholarships like for female collegiate ath athletes probably not what they are for men if I'm being honest um, okay but I don't even have like the statistics on that. But again, if you think about it, I'm a, I was a softball player and I played basketball too. Um, yeah. Crazy reflection. I've gone to sporting events throughout my whole life. I came from a legitimate like sports fan family. I barely went to my first WNBA game on Friday. And I thought, why? Why as a woman is this the first time I'm supporting women athletics? It's because not as open in the out there right like it's not marketed or advertised the way males are but they're I mean I think they have a right to to be just as much up there and be just as exciting you know but when I was going to school like there there really wasn't a professional league so you either had to be like a really good softball player who made it to the Olympic American like USA team Wow. So I think to, for me, like, I'm not like, again, I, I noticed this early. I think I was able to walk away from the sport because I knew I wasn't going to be an Olympian, first of all. Yeah. And yeah, and I was like, well, that's it. Like I, I, I'm retiring out of the sport, like unless I play recreationally, which I did for a little bit. But again, yeah. my career started to take a lot of time and I prioritized that. So yeah. even now, I think the the professional league is made up of six women's teams, six only. Oh. Wow. Yeah. And the pay is never going to be where MLB players are getting paid. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. We're going to move now into you uh, described yourself um, as a wounded warrior. 
Can you describe a little bit for the audience uh, what you mean by being a wounded warrior or what your story is around that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, actually I got that term from a, a therapist I was seeing historically. So I was already a licensed therapist and I was seeing my personal therapist, um, no longer with her, but she kind of turned in with like, you're kind of like a wounded healer is what she said. And I was like, oh, so what does that mean? Right. So just to give people perspective on what it could mean. So in my field, I predominantly do a lot of psychotherapy. That's my original career development. Mm -hmm. And in that field, there's everything about professional boundaries. Like you don't share about yourself. You know, it's really all about the client and that's really instilled in you. Um, now here's the unique caveat of that. There's, there's the mental health field, the, 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 the whole umbrella as a whole, which I think everything falls under the mental health umbrella, but there's also like substance abuse under that eating disorder, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I worked in the recovery world, substance abuse treatment, um, quite a bit. I have a lot of experience with that. Um, and in that field, you get a lot of people who end up in recovery and then they become the therapists or the counselors or the directors, right? So there's a lot of open sharing in that space, right? Mm -hmm. And and realistically, people feel more comfortable connecting to someone who's been on the journey with them. Like I, I there's nothing I could do to get around that. That's just the reality, I think, of clients as a whole. So I've always been less of like, oh, I don't just fit in the substance abuse bucket. I, I fit in mental health as a whole. And how do I see it broadly? So for yeah. me, you know, the unique thing is like, though I didn't consider myself to be in recovery at the time, I was like, my stories are kind of just like them. You know, like I grew up from very complex histories like them. And and for the first time, I started go, hey, I had that problem too. Or like, I've seen someone who had that problem, right? And what I come to understand is like sharing stories are helpful to recovery like we want to feel good knowing that we're not the only one in the struggle so I kind of understood the value of what my experiences could do to the therapeutic process so unlike what I learned in school I do share a little bit about my journey because I know what I felt like I felt like the only one I felt crazy I felt like there was something wrong with me I mean I was studying mental health and I was still struggling like so Imagine people who don't study it, like without any sense of knowledge around it. And, and a lot of the narrative of the world is like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you figure it out in this world versus like, can we just maybe put into question that the world isn't doing good? And like, we're just trying to like <laughs> oh. figure ourselves out or survive. Off? Yes, you're speaking my language. Yes. I lived initially. I mean, I live in that view now, right? Of like, how, how am I kind of thriving in this world versus like, historically younger I was like why am I not surviving well in this world right so um for me I grew up with trauma in my environment you know and as I say this too and and, and I love my family I'm gonna be clear like I I come from a very unhealthy enmeshed family but we love each other like you know and through our, regardless of our trauma like or the trauma we I've even had with my family like I don't find my family to be the issue. I find it to be a transgenerational issue. So even with like my queerness, that was a transgenerational issue because my mom was giving me a narrative that she thought was appropriate, which was, was religiously based. She was worried I was going to go to hell. Simply wow. put. So she told me that on a regular basis, like you're going to go to hell. And then when you're someone who's receiving that, right? Like um, you, you, you pathologize and you stigmatize and you shame yourself, right? And that's not my mom's fault. That's, a, that's our cultural narrative issue right so for someone who's a wounded healer I grew up seeing domestic violence I grew up seeing substance abuse in my home you know I grew up you know seeing you know very authoritative disciplinary you know I was spanked it was very common to be spanked on a regular basis the way that I was spanked you know I was not spoken to very well like I wasn't given an opportunity to understand my emotions or develop emotional language but nobody else in my family even knows how to do that right so yeah, yeah. and then you know while you're dealing with the regular kind of issues like shall I say that Latinx communities deal with or people of color like communities deal with right like yeah. and then right oppression and prejudice I'm yeah. also queer on top of that in an environment yeah. where I'm a, I'm a little older. So I didn't grow up where rainbows were everywhere. I kind of grew up on the cusp where 
we didn't talk about anything. And then we started to talk about everything. And that was a culture shock to me because I preferred to be quieted at the time because of my religious background. So I dealt with like a little bit of like oppression, you know, in my home. I cared less about what happened in my external world and more what was happening in my in my family. So now I'm a little bit actually more immune to outside oppression because when you feel it at the core of like your roots, that's yeah. way more impactful than people I'm never going to talk to again. That is so important. So just stopping for a moment and um, addressing your queerness. What age were you when you came out? So I could tell you as far back as I can remember, the attraction to women has always been there. I believe I was born different, you know. Um, and I say that because a lot of times, historically, I don't think this is always going to be so much the narrative now, but when there was a lot more ignorance in the world, they would say, we chose this life. We're choosing this. Yeah. I promise you, I never would have chose it because I knew that it wasn't going to be okay with some of my family members, just by the way we grew up. Yeah. And if I could choose to be normal, whatever the heck that looked like at that time, I would have chose that. I would have ultimately chose that. So interesting that you're saying that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I was actually 12 or 13. Um, a friend of mine, we were talking. Um, she was a friend that I had known for a while. We played sports together. And she basically asked me, like, you're gay, right? And I was like, no. And she was like, it's okay. Like you are though, right? And I remember that was the first time I sort of was like, and I didn't and I didn't know what I was gonna be at all. But what I couldn't accept in that moment is that I, I liked girls. Like I knew it wasn't that I liked boys only, that I, I did like girls. I found them attractive, I I in many ways. So I remember saying it out loud to my friend and I was just bawling bawling at the fact that like I had said this to myself out loud for the first time as like a 12 13 year old kid yeah it was crazy wow that's that's actually very insightful and in I I think in very very much in tune with who you really were as an authentic person so publicly doing it how long did it take you to come out to your parents then because I, I do want to just clarify was your religious background really the thing that made you uh, hesitate maybe or feel that you were wrong to claim your true identity as queer? Like, what was it rooted in, do you think? Yeah, I think it was definitely rooted in religion um, because I, we were very religious as a family, you yeah. know, not that we went every week, but like we went pretty regularly and, and, and I didn't, there was obviously gaps I wouldn't go, but, and then my mom transitioned to Christianity, but God was a narrative in our life every day. And it's it's still a narrative spiritually. I'm very connected, you know. So it was every it was it was God this, we pray, you know, we everything's connected in, in our my like as a Latinx individual. Yeah. That that religiosity is so connected to us culturally, you know. So it was very much the the religion and obviously the fear of like how my family's going to take this and because I didn't know and also you know, like I didn't want to bring shame to my family you know, that's another issue you know you don't want to ever do that so so yeah and so the reason I'm asking you and only only you know share what you want to share the reason I'm asking this is for people who may be struggling with this right now uh, and all the things you're talking about that wasn't something I struggled with but I'll say publicly, my first kiss was a girl. Uh, I, I just actually, I just remembered that not not long ago. But there was nothing about it, just that it felt kind of weird. And we were just experimenting around age, I don't know, maybe 11, 12. And just let's have a kiss and see what it's like. But you know, it didn't, it didn't go any further. And I didn't have a conversation. But this would have been in the 60s. Late 60s. Yeah. We definitely weren't talking about this stuff back then. But in your case, were you in like your 20s when you came out to your parents? And No, I was a teenager. Yeah, I was still a teenager. So what made you, what gave you the courage to do it? So around the age I came out, I actually did kiss my first girl. I was on a dare. It's a friend of mine I'm still friends with to this day. So <laughs> yeah, um, but a couple of my friends saw that. So, I, you know, I remember having to have conversations with my friends for the first time of like, 
what was that? You know, and mind you, we're middle schoolers, right? So, I mean, this is before you expect teenagers in, in before sexuality was so advanced the way it is today, right? So like you wouldn't anticipate kind of getting into those conversations till you were in high school. So it was a lot for my friends to absorb. Yeah. Um, but what, so what happened was, this is my coming out process. I uh, started to develop an attraction to a friend of mine who, who eventually became my first partner. And at this time, I, I, I've already accepted, you know, that I like girls. So this is probably a couple of years into it now, I'm around 15, you know, so like mm-hmm. commonly, again, this is why I kind of laughed earlier, like a lot of the lesbians were the athletes, you know, yeah. so a lot of them would be on my teams, you know, so there was around this age, I started to have teammates that were attractive, you know, and well, not that they were before, but these are also people that weren't my friends. You know, I wasn't going to try to like exert myself on friends that I had had for so long. So um, I, I developed an attraction to who would eventually become my first partner. And the funny thing is, I didn't even know. I just was flirty and I was a teenager. I was kind of going through the motions. Mm-hmm. My mom came to me and was like, do you like her? And I remember being so scared of her asking me that question. And I was like, no like the the craziest question like that's gross like uh, that was my legitimate response because I had internalized shame you know and yeah yeah well it's okay like it's normal and I was like that's not normal what are you talking about and she's like I liked girls when I was younger and I was like well that's your story like I was so defensive you know um long story short I do end up getting with this girl it it, it feels amazing you know as a as a first timer in this process but I was hiding it I was so afraid I was hiding it and eventually um like my my mom just knew she was catching on and then like my sisters kind of caught us you know in the moment and um I'm assuming they told my mom because we're very enmeshed and there's no boundaries so she just knew. So it, at that point, like, I got to be honest, that became the beginning of a time in my life that was very stressful because I didn't stop dating that person. My mom wanted me to. So I and that person didn't go to school with me. So I was sneaking around a lot. My mom was in my business a lot. She just yeah. wanted to know where I was like, and again, not to shame my mother. That's no, no. She wanted, I mean, she's a parent. She wants to know where I'm at. She's she's not micromanaging me. She just wants to know if why I came home a little late, you know, like, you know, yeah. so it was really like a lot of fear. And it, she knew, though, she knew what I was doing. And there were moments she accused me when I really wasn't doing it. But I was maintaining a relationship with her. So the reality is, is she knew and it was very stressful. She was not happy. She would make that known. And it's funny because it, it legitimately took me. And that was when I was 15 years old. I don't wow. think I started to out loud say I'm gay to my family or that I have a significant other who's a woman until I graduated college they knew I was with women it was it wasn't like a no and I was dating that same partner for the first partner for a long time and I was had female friends I'm gonna put the air quotes on they but we never like sort of genuinely talked about it and one day my mom I was probably like 19 now I was like why don't you tell me you're gay and I couldn't, I literally could not get the words out of my mouth to her. And I just started crying, crying. And she was like, it's okay if you want to tell me things that you think I don't want to hear. And I still couldn't. It wasn't until I was in a relationship where I was ready to, you know, at that adult age to start saying, like, tell my family, like, hey, uh, my significant other is going to be at my graduation. And I just don't want you to be blindsided. And then I, and I didn't even say I was gay. They just kind of knew. And it wasn't until later into my twenties, even more where I would say out loud, I'm gay in front of them, just to sort of like be okay with it. Wouldn't you agree, Janae, that the moment you say something out loud that you don't quite believe yourself yet, or you're looking for affirmation, it feels very freeing. And we can do that about, I mean, something that that's, that's a huge life event. We can do that about something that you're going to change in your life. 
uh, you know, like you're going to write a book or you're going to move or whatever it is. I'm talking a little bit smaller here at the moment. But just but just to say that that having that courage to finally say it out loud, it's like, whew. And um, it, you, you might have to still practice it a few times and keep repeating it. And just to reinforce that too, like yeah. when I said it, I still didn't feel like free. I feel like yeah. I was saying it because it was like, like you said, I had, I was giving it life. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're giving it life. I still didn't feel like just for the sake of listeners too and, and their journey, because a lot of what I get from people, so I work with LGBT community, a lot of what I get from them is like, I should have came out sooner. No, no, no. There is no time frame with this. There is no known time frame with this because yeah. I'm now in my 30s and really accessing that freedom, that authenticity yeah. I'm really looking yeah. for. So there is no time frame on feeling safe enough to be your because that's what this is. It's a safety issue. When I said it out loud, I didn't know what I was going to receive. I was scared of what I was going to receive. Oh. You know, it wasn't that I did it. Yeah. No, I was gay. I had known for years. It was more of like, you're the people who mean the most to me. So when I say this, I might have to grieve. We're talking about grief, right? I might have to know that that is gone. That's connection we had is gone when I say that out loud. You know, yes. and it, it, yes. it was going to change everything that I knew by saying yeah. that. You know, Let's talk a moment, though, about we were talking, uh, you know, before uh, we even did this interview about grief adversity and and experiencing grief from different things. And specifically, we're talking in this episode about you coming out, other people coming out, what that does to people. The, you know, we talked a little bit about um, having lack or fear of lack of parent support. You know, they can they can probably feel very much the same, you know, because maybe you can build a story in your head. I'm speaking to the audience here. Uh, that you have no support, and all along you would have had it from the very beginning. And this, you see, this creates other pressure. So I, I lost a daughter to suicide. So this is why I do the work I do. And trust me, she was 22 and she died. And, you know, I found out that she believed certain things that just simply weren't true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, that we she was a burden to us because she was having a little bit more difficult time. So whatever you're struggling with, as I've said earlier, we're, we're talking here with you today, Janae, about marginalized communities. But it doesn't matter what pushes you into feeling different, isolated, scared, shamed, and start making assumptions and stories in your head. And these things can lead to death. They really can. And I think you've seen that in your community uh, that you have served over the years. Uh, but with you, did you, we're going to move a little bit into um, a little bit of the trauma, uh, the grief adversity. So one thing that's really important here, so why don't you, if you can, is just address a little bit here about this fear of parent support and what somebody could do. I mean, you can't, you can't force yourself to do something you're not ready for. So it's how they could manage these fears and assumptions and stories. And then I did just want to touch briefly um, after you've addressed that a little bit on the lost opportunities that not only living this way can manifest in your life, but maybe from other things too. And you did it for years, like a lot of people have to do for years. Yeah, a lot. You know, unfortunately, a lot of... Um where individuals or people within the, the community, you know, really struggle with this. Like, it's hard not to. It, I mean, I'm from America, so I know, like, we just go sell you in Canada. Beautiful. Um, yeah. You know, the culture out here, you know, and, and, and look, as I'm from California, you know. So let me say this, too, because one thing I, I, I always want to say is, like, I understand my privilege. Like, part of my work is is really acknowledging that as, an English speaking, you know, and a fairly well spoken, light skinned individual, like, and and being previously identified like as a lesbian, where people, I think, I've got to be honest, find my outward appearance attractive, and there is some sense of acceptability that I'm I'm give, give, getting that other communities aren't going to get. So, like African American lesbians or trans women, you know, those folks, like they they have a lot more oppression that they're dealing with, but my my story is genuine also, but I do want to acknowledge like 
the levels of privilege in my journey. You know, I think it is important to understand. It was important for me to know that, to feel good about myself too, you know? So yeah, I mean, there, you know, with my folks and, and, and my struggle, like, yeah, there's moments of grief. You know, I had to have moments where I had to kind of acknowledge like my relationships were going to be different or what I had hoped to have in life was going to be a little different than, you know, the average where, you know, my queerness impacted my relationship with with some family members to some degree. And, and again, I'm not blaming them. That was just the reality of our story. So yeah. uh, I will say a lot of times parents aren't going to react the way that we think they are going to react. And I mean that in a good and a bad way. Like you just don't know how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And it could be good or it could be bad, you know? So I think in many ways, there's no time frame on when this happens because when you do make the decision, I think this is just personal philosophies of like, you have to kind of prepare yourself for maybe a loss. You know, you're kind of going in wondering, am I going to get to keep this, you know, homeostasis, this this immediate family dynamic or how is this going to, for me, it was less of like, how is this going to change my life? Like it wasn't a question on if it was how, you know, so to prepare Mm -hmm. yourself, you know, like, and as a young, I was a teenager, you know, like I had known this at a young age in a family dynamic where we weren't already open to communicating. Like we didn't sit down and talk about our feelings. We didn't have love circles. Like my mom was a hardworking single woman who didn't always have the emotional energy outside of all the work she was doing. You know what I mean? So it's not like I want to say, oh, she's a bad mother. It's like, no, she mothered the way she knew, you know, and simply that she mothered the way she knew. And it took me time to understand that process. Like, and Mm -hmm. she probably had a grief herself. We had moments where we didn't really communicate that well. And that grief probably impacted how she interacted with me Mm -hmm. and vice versa, you know, and for sure. Yeah, for sure. There's just really no timeframe on when you're going to feel safe enough to do that. You know, like I didn't feel safe. I knew who I was. But I didn't feel safe to do that. And even into my later adulthood, it's barely now that I'm in my 30s going like, okay, now I'm safe to really present as myself, dress how I want, speak how I want. There are years in life I, I wasn't my authentic self, you know, and I'm not mad at it, you know, but I think I get a little space to go like, gosh, if I had 10 more years to to be the person that I'm capable of being, what I would have done, you know, like. Janae, let me just say this. Um, I believe that I'm in my mid 60s. So listen, you know, looking back, none of us claim our authenticity, like in one fell swoop, and then that's it. We grow into it, and it evolves, and it evolves. So for anybody out there, and I know the word authentic is it's been around for a few years, and there isn't another word to describe authenticity. It is being absolutely true to who we are at the core of our being, the more we understand who that is. And it changes, it changes. Uh, But if you're in tune, usually like aligned with yourself, usually it just keeps making you uh, more experienced, more knowledgeable until you feel ready to claim your wisdom. Yeah. And that is another topic for another day, but it can take quite a long time to um, call yourself wise. And it may come from experiences, it may come through age. So authenticity is always evolving. And I really respect your story and what you're sharing here. I also want to acknowledge there is an impact that resides within us when we're carrying stuff from childhood, adolescence, teen early 20s, all of this stuff, it builds and builds and builds. So for the people who aren't yet ready to share, to claim their authenticity as whatever they want to claim it to be, um, and are dealing with fear, I, I love how you pointed it out to safety, you know, a safety issue, because the number one thing our brain wants is to keep us safe, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. so if we're looking for safety through connection, which is what our basically our family represents to us, and we're afraid that by expressing and claiming who we really are is going to sever that, right? So rather than let it eat away at people till they are ready 
to, we'll just say come out, air quotes. Um, what can they do? I know this is packed, a packed, a loaded question, but for the people that, you know, can't afford therapy, is there just one or two things that you could get them to think about today that could just really help them process who they really are and accept who they really are and sort of deal with the shame and the fear? So yes, I appreciate what you say about authenticity. That's a beautiful way to describe it. And I'm really aligned with what you say, because like, there's really, you're right, like, it's hard to find like a synonym for authenticity that feels appropriate in this space. But for me, my queerness is my authenticity. And when I cannot drive myself from from that, I put myself on on hold in some ways. You know, and I don't I, I, I grieve it, but it, it doesn't ruin my life. You know what I mean? Like I've turned into who I am because this is part of my journey, you know, and my life was designed to be this. And I grew up in a time where there in an environment where there wasn't room for that. So I think if you're asking me one thing, we're a little bit more progressed in our society with these things. So I'm very um, excited, you know, for the older generations too. like you doesn't matter what age you are like. Right. We think just because we've gone through it for decades that like, okay, you know, now we are open in our authentic self, we could just move forward. It's like, no, you need, we all need to do a little healing boo, you know, like we, we, in America, you know, where I grew up, there wasn't room, right? So what I want to say a little bit is someone who maybe doesn't grow up within the queer spectrum, just a, a, a cisgender teenager, you know, who's exploring themselves, they have room to do that in their teenage years. So I think it's important for the listeners is to understand that that comes for us a little later. We almost have to get that experience when we're like in our 20s sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, because our parents don't know how to create that for us sometimes, you know, or our support systems don't know how to do that. So um, Dr. Patrick Lockwood, he he works out of Kowloon. He he did a study about how delayed adolescence for the LGBT community. So in other words, we don't get to date normally like other kids do because we're closeted or we're afraid of it or we or we don't get to talk to our friends about it, right? Yeah. Like, or like teenagers can tell their boyfriend, like the boys can tell boys, oh, I was just with Sarah. We don't have that, right? So I think when you're looking at like how do we help people how, like in this moment is you, you kind of have to find your family and your community. So what I mean by that is I have my blood family and I'm very fortunate for them, but I created a family too. And I'm not saying that they're all um, queer individuals. They're also allies. So it was about like, what, who are my people where I can show up safely as, as who I want to try to be. Cause you're right. It took, it took me time to feel safe to then go, okay, now I'm going to try this on for a size. I'm going to try this clothing or this expression or this date or that you know what I mean like I do know what you mean and you're so you're basically saying community and that is so key and I'm working a lot with community lately and just started building my own and you know so when we want to move and I'll just speak to the uh, bereaved audience um, we're talking about grief bereavement is when you've lost someone grief is you know basically uh, what you're feeling in terms of pain related to a loss and then I just say well we're all in grief because we've all lost something if not someone my introduction into it happened to be losing my child so it was very very uh, life-changing for me and um, I lost my identity and so I had to struggle to find who I was with that experience and I struggled Uh, so what you said was very key for me you identify as queer and that is uh, a huge identifier for you I'm paraphrasing a bit and what struck me is lately after 18 years being bereaved as a mother I'm questioning do I want that to continue to be my identifier but I see I can't change it but I also am trying to make room in my life to have something else that also becomes an equally important identifier. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because, again, for the audience, whatever you're um, struggling with that has robbed you of identity and robbed you of opportunities, and you're right when you're saying, when you were describing being a teen and having to hide your dates and your partners and the excitement you feel, you know, of a first kiss or, I don't know, the next step in the relationship, that's living in secrecy and shame. And it's not that much 
different than living with bereavement from a loss that other people don't get because they don't want to talk about it. So you feel basically shunned and isolated and culturally silenced just because other people don't want to hear and talk about it. Everything that you're talking about can also be applied to what we feel when we're living with a loss such as, you know, or a type of loss. So it could be the relationship, me, child, so people don't want to touch it, suicide for millions, and we still don't really want to talk about that. And and then all of the other things, but they cross into so many different groups. So looking for community is proving to be so important. So going to a little bit about lost opportunities, what could people be on the lookout for in terms of not letting uh, themselves lose out? Let me just say broadly and in general, too. So you talked about suicidality. Like we have to be aware that in the LGBTQ community, the the prevalence rate for suicidality is so high. I was I was an individual who struggled myself because I I didn't feel good about myself, you know, in the in the world that I was in. And what I mean is like my hub. <laughs> it feels like yeah. the world right? growing yeah. up in my world. Like I was different. I was I was almost it felt like the leopard you know like in, mm-hmm. in a metaphorical sense so I think yes I had had those ideations I would never particularly do it because I valued my family even more than my own emotional needs but what that in turn did too is so let's talk about lost opportunities in the sense yeah. that like it impacted my self-esteem it impacted what I believed I was capable of right yeah. or I might have sold myself short as a result of it, right? Or can I even be here? Because are you going to be comfortable? And if I am here, how do I uh, acquiesce or become a chameleon so you never find out about me, right? So again, safety even in my workplaces are in my opportunities. And I'm just, again, me, a privileged person who always felt safe to to kind of be in the communities. You know, Mm -hmm. there are people in my community that don't want to go outside, they're afraid to yeah. talk to people because, yeah. uh, you know, like the trans community and I, I'm here with them. Like, I know what it's like, like when I was in a relationship playing hand with the same sex partner and what that did to me. Yeah. And if I don't do that, that that look kind of goes away sometimes. Right. People aren't really sure how to gauge me. But sometimes when you're a trans person, that person, that look doesn't go away. And people nowadays with media believe they have the right to express themselves outwardly regardless of your feelings because of like the political climate and things right now and it's like we're just human beings like we're missing an opportunity at like any sense of normal life that all we're striving for like we deserve to be at the table but like let us stay in peace we we miss opportunities we we have to grieve our peace sometimes you know or fact that you feel that people have an ability to know about my gender and sexuality and ask me and ask questions like I'm open to answering them for education but like those are yeah. things we had to adjust our lives to for pe- for people who can go pick up a book and just educate themselves yeah. you know what I mean yeah, because I would I would imagine there can be lost opportunities in terms of being hired for jobs if you're noticeably different. Right. There um, are laws against it. You know what I mean? Yeah, if you presented differently, like I always worried that I looked too gay or if I looked too butchy, what sort of attention would that bring to me? You know what I mean? Or it would let people know for sure I was gay. You know, and I that was always yeah. something that was in the back of my mind. It still is today. I work away from it but you you have to deconstruct that you know and I work on it every day to this day especially again with the reintroduction of like the political climate on you know because I must obviously I'm in support of my trans brothers and sisters and and the you know the drag community and I'm going to be outwardly expressive about that you know but then it's like oh I'm just being too out and loud and this and it's like I'm just kind of demanding for equity, like you to respect that my gender and who I love. I'm yeah. trying to wake up, show up, live a good life, do my job, pay my bills and and build something for myself like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Literally how we fit into society and into our various communities. Um, I will tell you when you feel marginalized, such as I have in my bereavement, because as I said, nobody wants to talk about it. Well, um, it's really tricky claiming your authenticity 
right? And, you know, feeling that we can be free to be who we need to be and who we really are. <laughs> you know, you're queer, I'm a bereaved mom. Things that people don't want to really talk about, but we can't change because it's a fact. And so it's a journey and it's a sad one uh, that I too lived in secrecy. And I just want to point out, as did my son from 13, who had to hide that his sister, you know, died by suicide. Uh, so it's impacting, you know, whenever we're, quote, different. I don't even think there is a normal anymore. But I do, I do know there are marginalized communities, for sure. And we need to respect that there are marginalized communities. But society has to open up to allow us to not feel marginalized. And even in the work I do, try and find a, a podcast category for grief, bereavement, loss, death. No, there isn't one. And so the point being, you know, when it feels like we're still having to, you know, chop down trees to make a path, it, it gets tiring, especially yeah. when you're years and years and years and years into it. And it would just be so simple if we all just respected each other. And in spiritual philosophy, and I've had a spiritual practice since I was 25 years old, you don't think about gender, you don't think about it, anything, you, you just respect it all and just love each other for who you are. Human issues. Let me yeah. tell you, regardless of yeah. what gender, what ethnicity comes my way, like, and again, I'm from a marginalized community, I'm good, like, but I'm a human more than I am anything else. And as a, you know, a cis Caucasian female who's in grief, like, that's a human experience that, that I, I've experienced grief. Why can't we connect just because we're, we're from different, like, in, in as much as I have honor and where I come from, because I really believe I have to know where I'm come from and who I am to know where I'm going. Yes. I also know, like, there's so much more of me I have to explore, like, just as a human in this ex experience. But it is important for me to bring light, you know, the, the topics that are prevalent to the community. Yes. They're struggling in those issues. Yeah. And, like, to be open to talking about grief would, would really create a conversation. We have to create a conversation around the fact that things aren't working. And, and, right. and people really aren't ready to grieve and change. You know what I mean? Right. Like we, we have to grieve to change. We have to be comfortable and know that this is, there should be a category of podcast like on Spotify. But you know, here's the thing I wanted to just say, things that are different can scare people and I get it, but you don't have to experience exactly, even close what someone's going in to respect them, you know? to respect them. You know, look at you and I connected and I'm not in your world and you're not really in my world, but we have a lot in common. And if we would just sit and listen to each other and not be so quick to judge and ostracize and have these righteous sort of views about what somebody else is going through without the experience yourself. And I've met enough people to know that um, they've changed their tune in their story uh, after becoming a bereaved parent, for example. And in some cases, they were psychotherapists and like they completely changed their practice after they became bereaved. I just want to say, so think about walking in somebody else's shoes, audience, and being open to learning about their stories because that is how we learn and I believe heal is when we share our stories and realize we're really not so isolated and alone after all. If you're not yet in a place where you can be totally free to claim all of who you are today, just keep working on it and do claim it uh, as and when you can. Would you sort of agree with that, Janae? Yeah, community is big. I only say that first because even in my work as a as a coach, as a psychotherapist, like my clients who who come from the same places, they want to know: is this normal? Is this because we don't have that available to us? So that's where I really yeah. had to acknowledge that my vulnerability was going to be valuable, whether I liked it or not, you know, because yeah. there's just not enough um, healthy voices out there for people who really, and I'm not saying I'm all encompassing of health, you yeah. know, but really getting us in the right direction to recreate new generational um, narratives in health for everyone, really, like, realistically, it's got to be a everyone change in my perspective. Well, one of the things I'm just going to say, know how vulnerable to be in any given situation, because 
our vulnerability can create, I'm sure you'd agree with this, Janae, it can create some defenses within us that make us want to act a little bit more aggressively sometimes or in anger and all these negative emotions because being vulnerable is scary. But when we can claim that vulnerability and kind of use it like you were just talking about as, as a way to advocate, as a way to educate, as a way to bring awareness and not minding to share our story, there are more of us that do not uh, share stories than those of us who do. And the ones who are willing to do can be thought leaders, uh, you know, can create change and also encourage others to, uh, you know, think about sharing a little bit about their uh, own experience too. You're never alone, people. No matter what you're going through, I can guarantee you are not alone. We're coming to the top of the hour here, Janae, and it has been absolutely uh, delightful. Do you have any last thoughts that you want to leave with the, the audience? I just want to, just to kind of touch on topic of what we discussed, grief is so vital for our life. You know, it's a part of our human experience. It should be talked about more. And just because I'm vulnerable in my grief doesn't mean, you know, it, it becomes a part of my forever story. I think by by claiming it and taking ownership of it and giving it a safe space have ultimately allowed me to say, like, thank you for that experience. And this is who I am as a, as a result of that. My my story is, is, is uh, ever flowing, ever ongoing journey. Like I don't have it all figured out. You know, I definitely am in, like you said, authenticity, I think is a lifelong journey. You know, I think it's just important to, to value our adversities and our, in our, in our struggles. And again, we're not alone. If we could just take ownership with them and find community with them, we can really learn to kind of, again, find our thriving life versus like our survival life. I, I was very stuck in that for majority of my life, you know, and and really because you you sit alone, you sit in silence with your grief and your shame and your struggle, you know, and, and that's not necessary. There are resources, there are people who will see you, you know, hear you validate you and know that like, everybody's so, so different. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We are not designed to be ticky tacks and a one size fits all. So just because like, you haven't got it right the first time or got the information you needed, it does not mean that there is not some that are meant for you out there. You just kind of have to keep looking, you know? So, I, you know, I'm just a wounded healer here, just really trying to spread the hope and, and even such a challenging process. It really is a beautiful process. If we could just all acknowledge we go through that and that we're all here to resource each other through this. So, yeah. That's really beautifully said. And and even just on a last note, and I'm going to then invite you to uh, you talk about your resources. As we're searching for our identity, which some may find faster than others, great. But if you happen to have had any adversity, any loss, any anything in your life that's causing you to sort of not know who you are, just, it, you know, don't force yourself to try figure it out. Just basically take the time. Um to go with your feelings. I think it's, it, it's, it's absolutely essential. We acknowledge what we're feeling and what we're thinking and how we're expressing and be really, really um, accepting of that. The more you get in tune with yourself and search for who you really are and who you want to become, uh, the more, uh, you know, the way is shown to you. Turning to your resources, Janae, as I said earlier, you do have your own private practice, right? And can you just let the audience know uh, uh, who you're welcoming as clients and how they can contact you, even though I will have the links below? So yeah, so I do um, psychotherapy services in California and Florida, uh, but uh, virtually, but I also do coaching services. So I'm not limited, you know, to state in that sense. So like I obviously offer um, virtual coaching services um, mm -hmm. nationally. My particular populations in which I serve are like young adults, um, the LGBTQ plus communities, Latinx communities, as well as like the BIPOC communities. I do have like obviously my background in trauma, but my real focus is really like really helping those people thrive. Like how do we get to a place and helping those communities access you know, their roots, you know, in some degrees and really start to um, find their way, you know, so that's a lot of my work and what I'm doing and um, workshop development for those communities as well. So I don't have them fully rolled out, but I'm in the midst of creating those for those communities as well. So what is the name of your website and any socials that you have? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me at jadeborregolmft.com. 
Um, and then also I'm on um, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you know, basically just Janae Borrego LMFT is where you, you can find me. Okay, that's perfect. So I'll have uh, the link to your website. Uh, can they connect with you on your socials from your website? Yes, you go on my website, you'll find access to my socials. So they're all very connected. So I will have the link to the website below. I really, really want to thank you uh, for being here, Janae, and uh, for sharing your story, your expertise. You're just a wonderful human being. And I really do thank you for what you're contributing to your community. It's so awesome. And just thank you, you know, thank you for the space and the forum and in the, the the safe space that you're creating for people. I think that it, it very much so if you're asking like a, a tip for the community, it's really just safe spaces for people to express themselves. So whether that's in coaching, if it's in yeah. psychotherapy service, it's in your art room, your dance room, it's in your classroom. It is so important for someone to really just be able to find themselves and in, in, in share themselves with others. So I just really appreciate your vulnerability and, and oh, what you're doing, you know, to all the folks who are really making change. So I appreciate you. You're an amazing mm. human being as well. Okay. Well, thanks so much, uh, Janae, for that. I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Lev.